Welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, a place for healing and hope for couples impacted by betrayal resulting from infidelity and or sex addiction. Your hosts are Marnie Breaker and Dwayne Osterland, licensed marriage and family therapists, certified sex addiction therapists, and founders of respective treatment centers in Long Beach, Los Angeles, and San Diego, California. Marnie and Dwayne co-created Helping Couples Heal, a comprehensive program for couples recovering from betrayal trauma, including an in-person two-day workshop, an online aftercare program, and this podcast series is the first component of the program. Thank you for listening. Marnie and Dwayne are committed to helping you recover from the devastating impact of betrayal trauma and are honored to support you wherever you may be in your healing. If you've lost hope, you've come to the right place. Now, take a slow, deep breath. And let's begin with the Helping Couples Heal podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Marnie, and welcome back to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. I am here with Dwayne. Hello, everyone. It's great to be here. And we are really honored to be able to share with you today a conversation that we had with two incredible relationship experts who have contributed so much to the field of psychotherapy and couple therapy, relational therapy. So we had the opportunity to talk with Harville Hendricks and his wife, Helen LaKelly Hunt, about their own relationship and how their own relationship inspired them to create Imago Therapy and how they found that the tools in Imago Therapy really helped to not just help their relationship, but how to save their marriage. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great conversation. And for me, I was a little starstruck to meet them because I've known about them through all of my education. And they're very fundamental in couples therapy when they came out with the Imago Dialogue and um, you know read all their books. So I was very excited to do that and to be able to talk with them. I was as well. I was thrilled when they responded to my inquiry and my invitation to join the podcast with such excitement. They were really passionate and enthusiastic in the interview. Typically, when we have a guest on our podcast, it's done in a real interview style. And this particular episode is really done differently. We do it in way more of a a conversation and just getting to know them. They are very open about their own history and how their history impacted their work. I'll share real quick. My experience with Imago therapy goes back like, I think, a decade. And I was introduced to Imago, you know, when I first started out as a licensed clinician and I ended up doing the Imago training and sort of starting the process of getting certified. I did that Um, with my colleague and friend, Dr. Omar Manwala, and it was such a powerful experience. I thought I was going to learn just about the Imago Dialogue and how that can help communication, but Imago Therapy is much bigger than just the dialogue. However, for the purposes of our audience, our listeners, um, and what we focus on, which is betrayal trauma, we tried to keep the conversation with Harville and Helen really focused more on the safe conversation or the Imago Dialogue because that's really what our clients need, right? Is those communication tools to be able to regulate themselves and decrease the reactivity in difficult conversations. 
Yeah, and the Imago dialogue is so fundamental to some of the work that we do because it's one of those pieces of scaffolding that help a relationship when it's super activated to be able to have a conversation in this style and create empathy and and get to that space. And I also just love that they are so open about their own struggles that actually led to this, that Yes, they're experts, but there are also people. And I love that they bring that to the work and and they share that in this interview. So I really hope everybody enjoys it and gets a lot out of it. Before we start the interview, I also want to set up some context because what Dwayne and I often talk about in this podcast is the nervous system and how the betrayed partner's brain gets so activated, right? And there's this experience of going right into a trauma response. And so one of the things that Harville and Helen talk about is why the safe conversation really helps to deactivate and calm the nervous system, making it possible for people to be able to have a conversation in a relational way. So that's where sort of, you know, their philosophy and their work really overlaps with our work and what we teach. Absolutely. And one thing that Dwayne and I were able to experience that unfortunately um, our audience, all of you, will not be able to experience is we were on video with Harville and Helen during the interview. And what was so incredible for me was to be able to watch their interaction together. So they truly practice all of the tools that they teach. You know, they maintained connection with each other throughout. They were checking in with each other. They definitely use humor and, you know, the eye contact. And that was really beautiful to see, you know, so so it's almost like they're teaching what they know and what they've learned. Yeah, I definitely had the same experience as well. It was great to see them. There was so much really great content. And we talked for such a long time that we ended up realizing we needed to break up the interview into two separate parts. So today you're going to be hearing part one. And pretty soon we will release part two. So stay tuned for part two at some point in the very near future. We hope you enjoy the episode and getting to know Harville and Helen as much as we did. All right, let's start it. Here we go. So Marnie and Dwayne, we're thrilled to be here. And a first question you said you would like us to respond to is what inspired us to create Amago Therapy? And I think I will start the answer. I was divorced in uh, the mid-1970s. I wanted to become a therapist, and I had just begun my training to become a student, getting a master's in counseling psych. It's in Dallas at SMU, and uh, Harville Hendricks was teaching a course on relationship, but I I went to the back of the class. I sat on the back row. I never introduced myself in this course that I took, but I really loved it. There was a party four or five months after the course was over, and we both were at the party in different rooms, and someone said, Helen, you want to connect with a, a therapist for your next spouse? There's a guy named Harville Hendricks next door and he's divorced. I went, oh, well, I have heard of him. I mean, I know what he did. I've never met him. I'll go introduce myself. So I went into the next room and I introduced myself and I got him to ask me out. So that began (laughs) a relationship 
And Harville said, you know what? Why would anyone divorce me? <laughs> I actually did that. Basically. He said, yeah. why would someone divorce someone like me? So this that was, it was the, sort of a joke. Why but. we began as relationship experts was Harville trying to figure out why would someone divorce me? Well, the answer that he received as he was thinking about it, maybe there's stages of relationship. And he would give lectures about stage one. He, he would get people in a room and, and other people had heard him speak and people began to gather. He said, everyone, and he'd have a chalkboard behind him. People fall in love. Wow. Greatest moment of their life. They they decided this is the person I want to spend my life with. That is stage one in a relationship. It's called romantic attraction. And then he would draw another line and he'd say, stage two, every relationship where two people are romantically attracted to each other are inevitably fall into the power struggle. It happens yep. to all of us, everyone. Okay, stage three. If you do a few things in stage two, everyone can get into stage three, which is called real love. And you have to become conscious of a few things and learn to speak in a different way and everyone can get to stage three. Well, I decided after dating him a while, I should propose to him. I said, if you move with me to New York, I'll get the best agent in New York City, that person will find the best publisher, will get any help with the writing. And five years later, the book came out. I picked up the phone in the New York apartment. It was the Oprah Winfrey studio. And they had read the book. Oprah hadn't, but they said, she has authors on, come and let Oprah interview you. And she took that show and submitted it to the Emmy committee and it won Oprah her first Emmy. Wow. So she had him on 17 times and the book became world famous. Wow. That is such a great story. And hence relationship experts. <laughs> and yes, well, I don't know. You you can you can get visible and not be an expert, but um I think that we learned something along the way. The piece I want to add to the story is that the beginning of Imago before it was named Imago was in 77. It was named in 1980. The um, Imago Dialogue, the piece I want to tell, start about how it happened, began uh, not long after we met. Let's talk about getting married. Yeah. We had, I mean, this was probably six weeks after yeah. we met. Yeah. And we'd gone to dinner because uh, she had mentioned uh, I, my dissertation was on Tillich and Freud and that was Rollo May who wrote yeah. that book. So that was really interesting that she even knew that. And also the piece you didn't tell, this class that she was in was a very large class and it had two doors to the room, one up near the front and one near the back. And she always came and went from the back door. And I never saw her because the class was too big just to pick out somebody. But at this party, when she came up to me and told me who she was, uh, in fact, I was at the party not to date anybody, but to accompany a kind of scared friend of mine, a guy who lived across the street from me, who did want to uh, date because he'd just been dumped by somebody and he was there to meet somebody. I was there to be with him for an hour and I'm on my way out the door when Helen walks down the hallway 
and says, um, uh, hello, uh, Dr. Hendricks, call me Dr. Hendricks. And I said, who are you? Because I don't want to meet anybody. I'm leaving. And she says, well, I'm Helen Kreiling, gave me her last name. That that was that her, my first, married her, name. her married name. So my, my brain said, Kreiling, why would I know? Why would I, I mean, that's an unusual name. Why would I know that? And then I think you said something about you were in, in one of my classes. And I said, oh, you wrote the best paper in that class. And I saved the best paper. So my guess is it's in my file drawer in my office. And uh, that was another reason why we got together was to confirm. Thought, well, he has good taste. <clears throat> good taste. And also she <laughs> wrote the best paper always that I saved was, and the many times I didn't save any because I would only save a paper where I learned something. So I knew this was of an intelligent person, but I hadn't met her. So the paper was there. I'm, I'm surrounding this uh, little piece of drama with a lot of history was that we had gone out somewhere, maybe to dinner, in her house. Uh, she was a single mom at that time, and the kids were, I don't know where the kids were, maybe some asleep or something. Yeah, probably asleep. <clears throat> and probably we, were, we were in a fight, and we went into <laughs> her house still fighting. And um, as, as Helen said, it's not only a hot marriage, but we had a hot relationship from the first six weeks. Hotness was actually a, a coldness. It was in an intensity of, of uh, frustration with each other and arguing with each other. <laughs> I've never met such an argumentative woman. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. He's easy to live with. He, he yeah. never argues. No, that's right. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a turtle. I just don't show up unless I get kicked or something. Um, but <laughs> thank you, dear. Oh, I appreciate that. Oh, <laughs> uh, and that, now I can hug back. The turtle doesn't reach out; they they respond. But at any rate, Helen said, uh, "Stop! Uh, one of us talk, and one of us listen." And that was the beginning of dialogue. At that time, all these lectures about relationships, there was nothing conversational. I mean, the, you know, therapy was about exploration, and it's not about how to talk. The therapy was about how to understand yourself. And if two people understand, they'd have a better relationship. We learn later that is not true. You have to do something other than self-understanding, have a great relationship. So I did stop. She stopped. We both calmed down. And my clinical mind turned on. And I was aware that when we took turns talking, we yeah. didn't even do turn listening. We just stopped and took turns talking. Yeah. Listening came later, but well, no, no, okay. In but terms but of the talking, the mirroring talk, out loud, the, right? But we just listened, listened, right. listened, right? And then said, "When you're finished, may I talk?" Yes, right. Helen is the originator of the dialogue process, and then I, as a clinician, noticed that that calmed us down, and I uh, had practice, so I started helping couples do that. And that eventually we began to do more listening and, then and I, mirroring yeah. and so forth. And so over the years, we developed the evolved we, we process. We continued to tweak it. I had been trained by someone who did primal therapy. I never had it, but I learned about listening to a childhood wound. Right. And then I really got caught up in mm. the idea of wonder, like, is there more? So it took a while for it all to evolve. Yeah. But that's but and that's where it begins. So I give Helen credit for starting, and in some sense that starts imago because imago dialogue is the 
centerpiece. It's the engine of Imago therapy. So thank you for starting Imago. Thank you, Helen. It's like it really came out of your own struggle to understand each other, like came out of your own experience. Of frustration. It sounds like it came out of the experience of being frustrated with each other. I think Harville is so additive and does something that most people don't know how to do is simplify the complex. Suddenly, like I brought a lot of ideas and he knew which ones to pick. And he created then uh, sentence stems and he did have couples, you know, in therapy. But anyway, it was a, it, it took a couple of years for the, well, it's still evolving. Well, Even so, so you can see ago, Hel- Helen, some things. Helen's been indispensable in the development of Imago of all along the way. So it really started to get the structure. You guys started to practice it and put the structure in place, which Harville did. And which is so important, like with a lot of the couples that we see when they're in crisis, it's so hard to talk within structure and not having any structure or not having any skills, you're you're left, you know, with those conversations that don't go anywhere. So much reactivity, trauma responses, you know, stonewalling. It goes, it, it actually goes horribly, which is why we do use the Imago dialogue or a safe conversation now in all of our workshops. When we're introducing couples to new ways to communicate, that's the first one that we use. And that's the one we go to all the time because it just stops the reactivity and just gets, right, gets you listening to each other and hearing each other. And if I could respond, Dwayne, to something you just said, um, recently, and this happens a lot, but recently we did a Zoom weekend workshop, 30 went to the retreat center, 30 couples and we did a weekend workshop for you know, several hours, Friday night, throughout the day, Saturday, throughout Sunday morning, and 30 couples in their homes. So it was a hybrid. And what we do on weekend workshops is give couples a chance to say, what was this like for you? And I can't tell you the number of guys who they stood up, went to the front, took the mic, or by Zoom, they would raise their hand and they'd say, the, the men, we had like four men say, when I learned about this Friday night, this sounded really hokey. My wife dragged right. me. Here. We always say in every workshop, one of you is a dragor and one of you is the draggy. Mm-hmm. And so she said, I, I, don't, I don't like the artificiality of the sentence stems. This is, uh, it's not authentic. I want a relationship where I can speak spontaneously and the structure, I don't want to do this. And it's by, I will say to this whole room, this is the most transformational weekend of my life. I'm never going to be the same person in the future. So there's a phrase that structure helps create safety. Yeah, absolutely. And you can have deep conversations with that structure. And it actually becomes even more authentic, like what you're saying, because the safety is there with the structure. And I think a lot of people, when they first hear it, don't get that. So I think it's so important that you said that. And I always validate when I'm introducing Imago, the the dialogue, I always validate, yes, this can feel contrived. You know, it might feel like you're reading a script and you kind of are. But the idea is to become 
effective, you know, with the, the dialogue. And then you bring in your own, you know, your own words, right? You make it yours. It's not going to always sound so not structured because you are always maintaining a structure, but it will sound more like you, right? But I will tell you what happens sometimes with the couples that we introduce Imago to is that the partner that's been really hurt by being betrayed gets angry and they'll say to them when they try to use it, you're just spitting back or using what the therapist said, right? You might, you might see that anyway outside of the betrayal world. But I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. Oh, yes, that happens uh, outside of that. That happens in most instances, especially where there's uh, anger being done. And what I found is the only thing that works is then I take over the mirroring as a therapist and mirror back. And so what I'm doing is what, this is another thing I've learned from Helen, who got really interested in brain research way before I did about how it's connected to this. So she's in her amygdala, and there's no way to go forward until she moves to the prefrontal cortex. So then what I do is take over and help her make that shift. Sometimes she will yell at me, but not, not often, because she has to say, yes, you got it. And then I say, well, is there more about that? And she says, yes, there is more about that. And then I'll mirror that for two or three or four sentences, and she's coming. And then I say, okay, now I'm going to hand this back over to George and he's going to continue to mirror that back because now she's in the reflective part of her brain. And I've now regulated her emotions so that she can now talk. So then you hand it back. You don't want to do it long because then that changes the dynamic. You just want to do it in order to do that. So that's um, a way I learned to do it. And that always worked. Uh, all you have to do is get people out of their affect into their reflection. And then they can uh, regulate that. And if they fall out, then you say, hey, can you stop now and just say two or three words because George is on overload and let George just mirror back three words. Just slow it down and do, I've even done one word at a time to slow it down, then a sentence and then a paragraph. But if you get on overload, Ellen spends a lot of time saying, raise that hand. If you get on overload, it's all over. Right. Just so you have to stay in the regulated place. So that's just a technical nuance. And I also think just people being able to know that they're in overload. Like if you haven't been trained in therapy and you haven't done this, a lot of times people don't realize they're actually in overload, especially yep. if there's betrayal. In a way, they're offline, so to speak, because they're in their, like you said, their amygdala, their affect, they, they can't see it and this keeps slowing it down slowing it down so they can get back into that yeah the the frontal cortex where they can think and hear each other better with our clients by the way one of the biggest interventions that we use is co-regulation these are typically high conflict couples in so much trauma um major attachment injuries all of that so co-regulation is the biggest intervention we use i'm hearing that that's exactly what you're doing with the imago dialogue Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because without that, you can't move into the connecting space. You got to do that to get safe so that then you can move out of the reactivity into the connecting space, which is where the uh, actual healing uh, happens. Speaking of structure. So it's great that you all work with people when this problem has occurred of infidelity 
that is often a time that Harville and I make sure someone, especially if they're not sure they're going to stay married or not, to perhaps have privates with a, a, a Mago therapist. But one thing we say with a troubled couple is, and this was my idea, that I noticed when Harv and I were almost divorcing 20 years ago, we both thought we're not doing it very well. But we kept going to marriage therapists and they, we kept firing them because we were smarter than them. But the last one fired us and said we were the couple from hell. So we didn't have any other choice. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And so in our workshops, we are transparent about this. And we tell the whole story of what I did that wasn't so great, and what Harville was doing that wasn't so great. And we eventually tweaked a few things. And um, we had a recommitment ceremony in a church in New York City. River, um, Riverside. Riverside Church. And then we had a big gala party on, on the uh, river on, on the hudson river and the fireworks went off and so we we started a second phase of um, marriage which is pretty joyful and so what was the worst day of my life i thought became the best day we could tell any couple don't give up we harv and i gave up but keep trying keep trying <clears throat> and um one of the things i mentioned to Harville, this was maybe 10 years ago, about bringing up issues. First, we realized don't do it before bedtime. <laughs> and uh, there are no more issues after four or five o'clock. You know, you make an appointment to discuss a problem. And we always say shift a, any problem into a request and focus on the request, not the problem. The thing that I think you all will really enjoy hearing, I said, Harville, I have a suggestion. Take the calendar, 30 days in the month. On the 1st, the 3rd, the 7th, the 9th, I am responsible to make sure by the time we turn out the lights to go to bed, we are connected. No matter if we've had a miscommunication during the day, if we suddenly had a terrible rupture, well, I have to fix it. I have to do something before going to bed where mm -hmm. we're connected. You know, offer a foot massage, shoulder massage, back rub, mm -hmm. um, ask you if I can make a special dessert for you um, or read something that you love. I have to do something mm -hmm. so that you're less upset. And then we turn the lights off. Then on the second day of the month, second, fourth, Sixth, eighth, tenth, it's you're on duty. I'm on duty on the even days. On the even days. And uh, this and is. So Helen is odd, I'm even. Every couple, there's a turtle in a hailstorm, the island, and the this way, the island's responsible half the days of the month to be there for her or his beloved. Yeah. And see, that makes the turtles show up because it's your day. So it's not like you have to react or respond. It's your own duty. So that morning when you wake up, you know that you're responsible for regulating. And back to the, uh, just for a comment, and then uh, about when Helen and I are working with a couple together, like about the uh, regulation, one of us can work with one person and the other one with the other one. 
and we don't work very long. The pullout is two or three minutes, but Helen can mirror back whoever she's working with. I mirror back the other one. And therefore there are two two regulators in the room. And then we put them back together and then sit and you're sit supportive of the one you regulated. And there's something about that. I remember on that another one of those we did on the on the stage with that big workshop where was an African American couple and you were regulating her when I was regulating him. And it was like magic. Like instead of these wild horses, we were riding those horses and slowed them down and connected. So I just wanted to finish that thought up. I just wanted to say, I love that you guys share your struggle and that it was difficult and it was a lot of work and just going about creating the relationship with intentionality and purpose and that that is what it takes to have a good relationship is it's work. It's, it's not always easy. And especially with the clients that we deal with when there's betrayal and they're trying to repair from that, it's doubly challenging. But what you point out is that strong intentionality to say, this is what we are doing. We are going to create this. And I, I just love that. And I'd like to ask a question, but quickly before, I want to tell our listeners, because they're not going to see the two of you, they're only going to be hearing it, but Dwayne and I are actually able to see you. And I want to reflect back that the way that you two show up, even in just in this interview, is by definition relational. You know, I've been watching you the whole time looking at one now you now they can't see she's putting her fingers over his head <laughs> so they're 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 they have humor with each other you know they look at each other there's a lot of checking in with one another even if it's you know it could be verbal or nonverbal so there's so much relational um skills that you're using on an ongoing basis and i think again some of those things we don't even realize how important they are when we're in our our either our anger or our frustration or our pain or just the busyness of the world right we we can forget to be relational yes well if i had been had practiced what i was preaching for the first 20 years of our marriage we wouldn't have had uh, to go to the divorce lawyers but you were saying Dwayne, it's hard to turn a cognitive construct it's easy to turn it into a practice for other people, but now you have to do it. It's like, I got to get on that exercise machine. I can coach you. That's easy. Uh, getting on and, and doing the exercise machine is really hard. So, so true. It really requires intentionality and discipline. Absolutely. Yes. Finally, I started doing it good enough. Yeah. Not, not great yet. Uh, He's great. I'll, I'll get it great. <laughs> <laughs> I really think that probably the most helpful thing for the couples that are listening, right? Our listeners, knowing how much pain and trauma they're in after infidelity, whether it's one instance of infidelity or, you know, serial affairs or full out sex addiction. How do you think that the principles of Imago therapy can be best used for those couples? Or do you think you can't really use a lot of Imago therapy with couples that are in a very high state of crisis and trauma, and you have to kind of calm the system and have some trauma resolution first before being able to utilize these skills? Oh, I think that you start the first session and the first interaction with the skill. For us, there is no such thing as do something else and then bring in Imago. 
Imago is the therapy. And we do some stuff that most therapists would think is pretty crazy, even with a trauma couple, which is the first interaction is an appreciation. Even if there has been a betrayal, there was a relationship there preceding, and there are things other than that that just totally get wiped out with pain. So to start off with an appreciation on both ways, that they're both ways and do that. So they learn to start listening and mirroring. And by the way, starting off with the appreciation is a regulatory device too, because people learn that they can mirror back and forth and you have less blowouts along the way if you start with that. So yes, you would go all the way. Um, I love the idea. And right now, Harville, you and I seldom are working with couples with critical issues because Harville had a dream. Helen, help me take this out of the clinic into the public. So we're really not doing imago therapy ourselves. We're doing something called Safe Conversations that people can learn about on the Safe Conversations website. But as an imago therapist, I love the fact that Often in the first session, we, the therapist, would say, we would like to spend our next two or three sessions talking about what was the dream that died. So mm, that's back well said. why you got married. Mm-hmm. And we want you to list, what did you think this marriage was going to be like on your wedding day? And, and what did you think your partner would be like? And what, what did you want at that time? And did you know what your partner wanted? And so let's just have two sessions talking about what was the vision you mm-hmm. had when you started your marriage. Mm-hmm. And then we have something called the revisioning process. That And all of this puts a couple in the neocortex instead of the, the lower brain is shame, blame, criticism. The couple wants to tell the therapist how horrific it's been to live with a person. Don't listen to it. That is not what those first sessions are about. Put them in the dream, you know, what it was supposed to be like. And then, and then after the dream is there, is there something about the dream that still could get revived? You know, you, you as a therapist, you direct the sessions. You don't let the couples talk about what they want to talk about. They're paying you to fix their relationship. So in my office, this you paid me to do this, to help your marriage. You have to do what I say. <laughs> the paradox is that connecting, which is our true nature, this is our theory, that we are connecting, but we lose awareness of it. And, and we lost awareness of it when we were little. And so to be connected, to experience it, is to f- activate the fear that you'll lose it. And so one of the ways people prevent themselves from the rupture of connecting is to never be very connected anyway, just to, to regulate it by enough something of something that they don't actually relax into safety and really touch each other, but they need to connect so they connect with some something or someone else. I have a tremendous amount of empathy for the rupture because you know because I, I know about that. My mother died when I was little. My father died even first year. Mother died fifth year, 
and there's been loss. And, you know, it's, it's kind of better not to be close because you could lose it. Nobody ever consciously does that. The brain just does that, saying only so close because if you really touch, you know it's going to come apart. So um, we want people to know your real problem is your terror about intimacy. Because if you were touched and you were intimate, then you might do this. So you acted out. You, you had to have intimacy, so you had it in a safe place, you thought. But that wasn't safe either. So this is why you put them into the dialogical space so that they can be with you, learn to talk and experience safety and connect and it not hurt. Then you have to train them basically how to stay connected and that if you rupture it again, how to repair it quickly. And so it becomes a training in relational competence. Uh, and that is the deepest therapeutic process we've run into is that our attempt to help people become relationally competent by knowing how to talk and listen without criticizing and listening without judgment, connecting beyond difference becomes the deepest therapeutic experience that they've had. So the exploration is not necessary because now they are living together. Oh, and the last thing is we want them to create new memories. So we have to create opportunities for them to create new memories to replace those old memories. And I would say like what you're saying is the, the relationship itself becomes the healing entity. As you learn to have deep intimacy, you will heal your wounds. You will heal yourself, all of your past and your childhood. Once you have that, I, I can totally agree with that and, and see that. And that has been my experience as well. It's not like a medical model where you heal the wound and it goes away. It's a change in the way you live together uh, so that you don't rupture. Absolutely. Yeah. I wish we had so many more hours to talk to you and Helen, because this is just such incredible work. And I know that that you've essentially spent the big, you know, like huge part of your career just trying to help people heal, couples heal their relationships and, and find their way back to each other, just like you and Helen did yourselves. And it's just so amazing. We're really grateful you took time uh, to talk with us. It's been a wonderful experience and I do hope we can do it again. I'm going to follow up and see if we can schedule a part two. Okay. That's great. We appreciate being on and we'd love to have part two. Thank you everyone for listening to part one of our conversation with Harville and Helen. We will bring you part two very soon. So stay tuned for that. Enjoy the rest of your day and be gentle with yourselves. Take care. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, where your healing is the number one priority. If you'd like additional resources about betrayal trauma or to learn more about the workshop, please visit helpingcouplesheal.com. If you're finding the podcast helpful, please support Marnie and Dwayne in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast with someone you care about. Once again, thank you for listening. We're grateful for your trust and look forward to continuing to support you on your journey of healing.